make sure that when you have a moment, if you see Joe Workman or just want to text him, just encourage him. Uh, these past couple Sundays, he's been filling the pulpit and doing a phenomenal job pastoring us, pointing to Jesus. Uh, we are beyond blessed to have him as an elder. I've never met a man with so much hunger for the Lord and hunger for his kingdom to advance in power. First Timothy 5 says, uh, those who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. And uh, Joe's been laboring and preaching and teaching, and he doesn't get paid. He doesn't get reimbursed. He's a lay elder. It means that he's a pastor, on, uh, a pastor, if you will, an elder, but not uh, reimbursed for what he's doing. So make sure you honor him and thank him. And last week, he wasn't planning on preaching, but uh, some of us <clears throat> on stage were quarantining, so couldn't be there. Uh, and we're past quarantine. Don't, like, don't part the Red Sea and everyone leave. Uh, we're all healthy and happy for the glory of Jesus. Okay, so with the four verses we're looking at this morning, it's only four verses, and yet we see a beautiful description of what God, the Holy Spirit, is doing at this church in Antioch. This church in Antioch. And the three things that we're going to see is this in this text today. Is we're going to see what happens when a church is unified in the Spirit, hungering for more of the Spirit, and lastly, yielded to the Spirit. So verses will be on the screen. I'll read this, pray, and then we'll jump on in. Verse 12, chapter 12, 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid hands, their hands on them and sent them off. Let's pray. Father, what an honor, what a joy, what a privilege it is to gather and to sing your praises this morning. Thank you, God, that your presence is our inheritance forever. Lord Jesus, and so we declare that your presence is welcome here, Lord. Have your way. Our hearts are hungry for more of you, God. We've only scratched the surface of what's available, Lord, and of what's coming. All because of what Jesus Christ, our precious Savior, has done out of love for us. The veil is torn. What an honor, what a gift to have communion with the living God. So we come before you humbly, we come before you grateful, we come before you in awe that you would invite us into your presence, the presence of a king. This morning, may we not take that for granted. Thank you, Jesus. So we pray, Holy Spirit, come and have your way with your word and with our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, hey, before we jump into this text, it would serve us well to do a quick refresher course of how the church at Antioch came into existence, okay? So are you guys ready to hear Antioch's church planning story? You guys ready? All right, put your thinking caps on. We're going to run through this, all right? So uh, around 35 AD, what we've seen so far in Acts is the church at Jerusalem, around 35 AD, got heavily persecuted. That's where the main hub of the church was located in Jerusalem. Persecution came, and they scatter to Judea and to Samaria, and all the way, some believers went all the way to Antioch in Syria, which was 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and they don't scatter in fear. They're not hiding in the fear of whatever. No, they're, what we see, what we learn in Acts 11 is in Antioch, the believers who fled there from persecution are advancing the kingdom in love and power. That God's grace was upon this body of believers, and they're doing amazing things, and Gentiles are coming to know Jesus because Antioch is a Gentile city. And word spreads. What the Lord is doing is so amazing that word spreads all the way back to Jerusalem, central command of operations, okay, CENTCOM. I got, I got made fun of uh, I had to check with a military person. I got made fun of previously for saying sitcom because I didn't know what military lingo means. But there, it is a thing, central command, right? Central command. Okay, so central command Jerusalem gets word of what's happening in Antioch. And so they're like, hey, we need to figure out what's going on. And so they uh, decide to get Barnabas, a man full of faith, a good man, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. They decide to send Barnabas on a recon mission to go scout out 300 miles north. What is, what is going on at the church at Antioch. And so Barnabas goes, because Barnabas is just the man, and he goes, here I am, Lord, send me. And he goes, and when he goes to Antioch, he is blown away. 
His mind is blown by what he's seeing the Lord, God the Holy Spirit, doing in and through the church. If you read Acts 11, it says that he sees what's happening, the grace of God upon them, and he, he does what Barnabas does, son of encouragement. He encourages them, and he strengthens them. And instead, and instead of Barnabas going back to Jerusalem and reporting on what he's seeing, he makes a beeline to Tarsus, where Saul's hanging out in his hometown. We don't know what he's doing, but Barnabas makes a beeline to Saul and says, the Lord is doing something earth-shattering at Antioch, and we need Saul. Barnabas maybe was, was uh, told by the Spirit or saw something on Saul's life, obviously the commission that God gave him. He, he goes all the way to Tarsus, tells Saul what's going on, and they both return now to Antioch. And for a year, roughly a year, Saul and Barnabas, and by the way, Saul is Paul, the Apostle Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name, the Apostle Paul is his Greek name. And there's going to be a transition here that we'll see when Saul stops being called Saul and he starts being called Paul. So for a year, they're shepherding, they're teaching, they're pastoring the church at Antioch. And then there comes a day where this dude named Agabus, a prophet, comes from Jerusalem to visit the church in Antioch. And just imagine with me for a second, if someone came that we don't really know from 300, church 300 miles away and comes to us and says, hey, the Lord told me that there's this big famine coming. And uh, the persecuted church in Judea needs uh, money and food and resources. And so I want you all to empty your pockets and give us as much food as you can on a prophetic word, right? And this just goes to show you how Antioch uh, honored the prophetic word and honored what Agabus said. That's literally what happens in Acts 11. Agabus comes, a prophet says, the Lord said a famine's coming. And the, and the church at Antioch, we see their sacrificial generosity. In the middle of a famine coming, they empty their wallets and their pantries and send their resources with Saul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem, okay? So all that to say, where we're at in our text, what we just read in verse tw chapter 12, verse 25 is this. Saul and Barnabas are now going, they, they finished their relief mission to the church of Judea, and now they're on a return journey back to their home church of Antioch, but they're bringing with them now John Mark. John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. If you're around Barnabas, he's just roping you in, right? Like he's going to grab Saul and then he's grabbing his cousin Barnabas. Like you got to get, get in on what the Lord's doing, right? And uh, what we know about John Mark is he wrote the gospel of Mark, okay? So let me, let me bear with me for a moment on this. Before we just say, oh, John Mark, Paul, and Barnabas are on their journey back to Antioch, what we need to realize is that at this point in our text, three of the soon-to-be, soon-to-be most influential men, whether you're a Christian or not Christian, just historically speaking, three of the most influential men are leaving Jerusalem. The most influential men on the planet Earth to walk the face of the earth, shaped history, are now leaving Jerusalem and going back to their home church in Antioch. It serves us well to this morning to consider what was the impact John Mark had on the landscape of history. He wrote the Gospel of Mark, do, you, do we have any idea how influential that gospel for the last 2,000 years has been on humanity? And then uh, the Apostle Paul, Saul, the most one of the most influential people outside of the person uh, of Jesus Christ himself to walk the planet Earth, the Apostle Paul, is now on his way to the church at any. But listen, John Mark and Saul wouldn't have been John Mark and Saul if it had not been for Barnabas, seeking them out and bringing them in. Okay, but where we're at, the reason I share that is this. Why do I share all this? Where we're at in the story, Barnabas, Saul, John Mark, they're just, they're doing great things for the kingdom of God. They're great church leaders, but they're hardly shaping the landscape of history at this point in the narrative for the next 2,000 years. Right, they're hardly, they're hardly uh, shaping history, uh, these men are, at this point in the narrative. So we need to ask what happens. Well, there comes a day when they go back to their home church in Antioch. And there comes a day where everything changes for these three men. And subsequently, because it changes, what the Holy Spirit does for these three men and in and through the church at Antioch, it changes for us. There comes a day it changed in their lives. And now, 2,000 years later, our lives. The gospel went to the nations with, with the text we're about to read these four verses. That's the influence. That's the impact that this church at Antioch had. And so given the global and generational impact that the church at Antioch had. It served us well this morning to ask and to weigh and to consider why was God the Holy Spirit moving so powerfully in and through the church at Antioch. And I think the first thing we see is this. In the midst of their diversity, they were unified in the Spirit. They were unified in the Spirit. This is what we read in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, 
Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manin, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And immediately what Luke is highlighting here is he's looking at, he, he, he's looking at the diversity of the church leaders at Antioch. So if you were to pull up uh, first century church Antioch, you're, you're, you're visiting Antioch for a Sunday and you're going to see what their leadership team looks like. All right, you go to their website in the first century and go to their leadership tab, and this would be the bio that you would read. These would be the bios, right? You'd read about Paul and Barnabas, who were both Jewish, but had been raised outside of Palestine. So you had Saul, who was from Tarsus, and Barnabas, who was from Cyprus. And both were fluent in the Jewish language and customs, but also spoke Aramaic and Greek. And then next, you read about Menean, a man who grew up with incredible opportunity and education within the household of Herod Antipas. And next, there's a Lucius of Cyrene from modern-day Libya, North Africa, who very well may have been one of the initial evangelists who arrived amid persecution and began reaching out to the Greeks. And last but not least, there was Simon called Niger, who is most likely a black African. And so why do I share all this? Why is this all important? Because here's what we know about the city of Antioch in the first century. Antioch was a massive city with nearly half a million people with a mix of cultures and ethnicities. And by the time Luke wrote Acts, at least 18 different ethnic groups were living within the city's boundaries. But historically, what we know is this, is that division amongst those groups remained and that these groups largely kept to their own communities, i.e. a classic case of first century tribalism. You just hung out with your tribes in the first century. And so what we see in Antioch is that in the midst of this diverse yet divided city, there's a new tribe emerging in Antioch. There's this new tribe coming to the service, this beautiful gospel mosaic on display for everyone at Antioch to see, where black and white, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, were gathering together, not divided or segregated, but united as a new blood-bought tribe in Christ Jesus. And this was so radical, this diversity and yet unity and diversity was so radical in the first century that some historians suggest this, that um, in Acts 11, we learn that at Antioch, Christians were first called Christians. Followers of Jesus were first called Christians. And, 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 what, and what scholars believe is this, is that the outside world that was watching what was happening with this body of believers at Antioch had no idea what to call it because of the, the, the diversity. Rich, poor, black, white, uh, 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 male, female, you know, like, like uh, unity, diverse, and they didn't know what to call it. And so they said, they said basically this, I don't know what's happening here. What do we call this? What is this? Right? We have to put a label on this. And what the label was, was, well, I guess they're all followers of Jesus, so we'll call them Christians. We'll call them little Christ. Because this is what followers of Jesus did in the first century. Right? That's what Christ was doing. He was tearing down, dividing walls of hostility. That's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel does. There's this beautiful, beautiful picture. And the first thing we see amidst all the things that could divide them they were still unified on their common pursuit of the Lord and advancing his kingdom. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul, who kind of cut his teeth at the church at Antioch, writes this, and this is what he says to the church at Ephesus. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, he's, he's urging, he's begging, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, the salvation to which you have been given, the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I think it's easy for us to look at Antioch and to think, oh, it was this magical fairyland where no one was ever fighting or wronged, and they all just kind of held hands and sang kumbaya, and you know, like there was never any conflict or division. That's not true. What we learn in Ephesians for, it's not even true to the narrative of scriptures because we see at Antioch was where Peter was hanging out with Gentile believers, but then when his Jewish homies rolled in, all of a sudden Peter starts backing up and then Paul opposes him to his face. We read about that in Galatians. So we do know that at Antioch, there was still a classic case of redeemed sinners, still the sinful flesh, still having its way there, okay? But listen, listen, what we learn in Ephesians 4 is that unity in the church is something to be one earnestly desired about like earnestly desired and secondly fought for in the best sense of the term. 
fought for. Look at the verbs, right? Look at, look at the attitude, the mindset that the Apostle Paul is encouraging us believers in the church to walk towards each other with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, like, like not keeping a long list of offenses. When we're wrong, it's a beautiful opportunity to illustrate the gospel, to, to act out the gospel. I've been wrong, but whom is forgiven much needs to forgive. So let's reconcile. Let's go over our differences. Let's not harbor bitterness and resentment. Let's press in and work this out rather than ghost each other and cancel the church, right? Unity is something that we, we're, we're eager to maintain, the unity of spirit. Now listen, why is it so important? Why is it so important to maintain the unity of the spirit? Because so much is at stake if we don't. That's the truth. So much is at stake if we do not maintain and fight for and strive for the unity of the Spirit in our midst. Because listen, if the church at Antioch spent all their time and all their energy and all their resources starting fires of division, and then all their money, all their resources, all their energy managing and putting out those fires, guess which fire is quenched? The fire of the Holy Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. You guys realize that in Scripture it says, this is not something I'm making up, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit. That word quench is extinguished, like throwing a bucket of water on an otherwise flaming, burning hot fire of the Lord's presence working powerfully in and through us. That's why we want to maintain the unity of the Spirit is because division is quenching the Spirit. Anger, hostility, petty differences that we can't get over is like dumping a a bucket of water, an otherwise flaming fire. And listen, if Antioch doesn't unify amidst all their cultural differences, then watch this, generations for 2,000 years of kingdom impact doesn't happen. You guys realize that, right? Like God is sovereign, right? And all that stuff, but we, need, we have to consider that the stakes are so high. It is the glory of Jesus that's at stake. When he said, when he prays in John 17 that they all may be one in him, his glory is at stake when, 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 we're, when we're just fighting over petty differences. When the grand scheme of things, eternity is at stake, okay? And the implication then is this, is that on the other end, on the other end of our precious unity that we strive for, and we labor for, maybe people that haven't even been born yet that are impacted hundreds of years from now because we chose to fight for unity in this house. That's the implication. That's staggering. I mean, that's what's happening at Antioch. For like, like John Mark, the Apostle Paul, Barnabas, missionary journeys, the gospel going to the nations. We're Gentiles. Like we're across the Atlantic. Thank you, Antioch. Thank you, God, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Antioch, for your unity that you guys were able to figure it out right, and make it work. Why? Because you love Jesus more than anything else, more than any political thing that could divide you. You loved his kingdom. You loved his presence. And that's what we see the church at Antioch doing. They were united on their passion for Jesus, keeping the main thing, the main thing, pursuing the Lord and pursuing his kingdom, pursuing the lost. And everything else falls into line because that is what is preeminent is we're unified in our love for Christ. And I gotta be honest with you, I have been, I have been thanking the Lord for our unity. The grace of God's been over our church. It, has been, it is rare. I have a couple friends and, uh, in ministry, two different churches, and it is, it is really, a really, really difficult, divided season for the churches right now. And I just wanna say thank you, Transit family. Thank you for the unity. And I think that's one of the reasons we're also seeing the Lord move so powerfully is because that's what we've been, that's just God's grace over, over this house in one of the most divided times, you know, uh, that, I've, that I've lived through. And yet what I've seen, at least from my end, maybe you guys are like, what are you talking about before? And I've seen is, man, we're unified. It's unified. It's beautiful. And, that, and that, that comes from an eager desire. And for us, bearing with one another in love and humility and gentleness and patience. So on the other side of their unity came generations of globe, like, like global and generational impact. Okay, that's this, that's how high the stakes are. If we're too busy, you know, fighting with each other, then that's all time that we could be advancing the kingdom and loving our neighbor, right? Okay, so we see that they were unified in the spirit, but the second thing we see is that they were hungering for more of the spirit. Look at verses two and three. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas 
and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So we only have two verses to describe the activity at, at Antioch. Only two verses to describe what were they doing? How were they spending their time? Right? What, what was their philosophy of ministry? What was their common pursuit? How did they spend their time? What was their church growth strategy? And if you were to look at the verbs in verses 2 through 3, the verbs would be worshiping, fasting, fasting again, praying, right? That's what they did. It was beautiful. And a simple summary to summarize what's going on is this community of believers had an intense hunger and desire for more that the Lord had for them. They understood that they were a kingdom of priests, right? A kingdom of priests that exists to worship and praise and to seek after the Lord and his presence, and they were hungering for more. We guys realize that as long as we're breathing air, there's still more that the Lord wants to do in and through us in our midst, right? Who knows? This is what he did in Acts. Who's to say he couldn't do it in our church this morning? His, this morning, the same Holy Spirit that was flowing and working at Antioch is the same Holy Spirit today that's indwelling you and I and is here present in our midst this morning, right? And they were hungering for the Lord that was in their midst. And watch this. They didn't just gather to simply attend a good church service. They didn't just gather to attend a good church, church service. They gathered to worship and to pursue the Lord who is in their midst, or stated differently, they gathered not just to consume, but they gathered to contend together, to contend in prayer, to collectively praise God because he's worthy. He's worthy of our praise and adoration. Our, our, our worship set is not, a, uh, uh, is not priming the pump for the sermon. It's, it's actually the most important part of what we do, us coming and gathering, coming with open mouths of praise to our King who's worthy of our praise. And so they didn't come to just consume. They came to contend and to seek after their Lord. As, or as Joe Workman, I love the way he puts it, they came to rumble. They came to rumble, right? Like prayer and worship Friday nights, uh, when those happen, the cabinet, like kind of every three weeks, but we encourage you to come. But that's us gathering to rumble. We're not coming just to sing songs. We're coming after to seek after the presence of God. And ama amazing things are happening and have happened when we do that. When we gather here, we're going to gather again this Thursday at 6 a.m., to seek the Lord in prayer and intercession. Uh, this past week was amazing. We really felt the Lord gave wisdom and insight. We felt this presence. It's amazing, but we're rumbling. We're seeking after. We want, as we're going through the book of Acts, we're looking at what the early church is doing and how they're spending their time. And it would serve us well to say, okay, well, oh, we should probably do the same things, right? And here's the beautiful truth. Here's the beautiful truth that we see in our passage is this. Guess who met them on the other side of their pursuit? God. God did. God spoke. It says, this is, this is an inescapable deduction that the Holy Spirit is making through the author Luke in Acts. Key word in verse 2. He says, while. Do you guys catch that? He doesn't have to say that. The Holy Spirit doesn't have to add that. The Holy Spirit doesn't have to say what they were doing before God spoke. They could have just said that they were gathered for a good church service, and the Holy Spirit spoke. He says, while. While they were worshiping and ministering and bless, ministering to and blessing the name of the Lord, while they were fasting, fasting is not transactional, it's relational. It's saying, God, I'm more hungry for you than anything else. So they're fasting, they're seeking the Lord while they were fasting and praying and worshiping. Then God spoke. That's causation. That's cause and effect. While they were doing this, this happened. And that's the pattern we've seen throughout the book of Acts. God's, collective, God's people collectively gathering to seek his face, not just attend church, and the living God showing up in power and not just changing their lives, but everyone on the other side of their gathering. Acts 2, Pentecost, they're gathered in the upper room, probably praying, probably worshiping, uh, Peter's on the guitar, strumming, saying, Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. Holy Spirit comes, fire falls, a bunch of people get converted. Acts 4, persecution comes. They gather. What happens? They gather to pray, and they say, Lord, we need courage. We need boldness to continue to preach the gospel. Would you stretch out your hands to perform signs and wonders to accompany the preaching of the gospel? God shows up. He shakes the building, and outside of that prayer meeting, thousands more people get saved. Acts, uh, let me check my notes here. Acts 10 through 11, we see Cornelius. We see Peter, and we see the causation. Cornelius was a man of prayer. It says, it says uh, the angel who appeared to him says, your prayers have arisen as a memorial offering to God. And here I am. Here's an angel speaking on behalf of the Lord to you. Uh, Cornelius prays. He gets an angelic visitation. Peter is praying around midday, and he gets this crazy trance, and the Holy Spirit's speaking to him, right? They're in the middle of prayer. Acts 12. Peter is arrested, right? We, Joe talked about this last week. James, one of the 12, is murdered. 
um, which, is, which is crazy to think about. The implication for the early church, one of the 12, James, son of thunder, completely, completely murdered, and then, and then Peter's arrested. And, uh, and, and what the church does, instead of grabbing pitchforks and storming the jail and all this stuff, what they do is they gather in fervent prayer. That's what it says. And as they gather in fervent prayer, that's linked to Peter's release through an angelic visitation. And where we find ourselves today in Acts 13, in Antioch, they're worshiping, they're praying, and then what happens? God speaks. The evidence is overwhelming. The evidence is over. So the rebuttal is this then. All right, Pastor Nick, are you saying God is a cosmic slot machine? Where I fast and then he has to do something? Absolutely not. He is sovereign. The wind of the Holy Spirit will blow where it wants. Amen? Right? Like he's not a cosmic slot machine, but he's a person. He is a person who, who we know can be. I was reading numbers. I'm reading through numbers uh, in my, in my uh, quiet times. And uh, numbers, I believe it's 15. It was like in one chapter, it was like, I think it's like six or seven times talking about the offerings and the sacrifices made to him was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. A pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the bottom line is this, you know, do we believe God is a slot machine if we just pray and worship and fast and he has to move? No, that's not it. But Hebrews eleven six says this. And I had a whole lot of verses that I was going to share. James 4, 8, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. But I love the way Hebrews 11 says, 11 says this. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why is that? Since the one who draws near to him. How do you draw near to God? I got a news flash for you. It's not sitting on your couch watching Netflix. <laughs> Worship, fasting, praying, getting in his word, gathering as a body of believers. That's how you draw near to God. Where is God? That's, where, that's, where, that's how you draw near to God. Engaging him. You must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's in God's word. That's what the Holy Spirit said. Without faith, you can't please him. Because so, what, what, how does faith manifest? Faith manifests in us drawing near to him and believing he exists and that on the other end of our drawing near and seeking him that he rewards us for it. And what's the reward? Is it a new Benz? Is it a new house? Is it, you know, winning the lottery? No, no, no. It's his presence. It's more of his presence. It's his voice. It's his leadership. It's God's. That's what we want, right? What else would we want? What else would the reward that we want? And listen, you can go to God with your needs. Jesus teaches us to pray that. Give us today our daily bread. You can go to God as a kid and say, Lord, I, I might need a new car. My car's all jacked up, you know? Let it be, Lord. Anyways. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but we want and the way, the way I liken it to is this. Anyone here loves surfing? Anyone here a big surfer? No one. Yeah, good. Me neither, okay? Um, <laughs> I was hoping maybe where you could teach me how to surf. Anyways, because I would love to surf. Surfing is awesome. But here's what we know about surfing, right? Is that when a surfer wakes up at 4 a.m., and drives super far away, puts on his wetsuit, and gets in like 30 degree water, and paddles all the way out, you know, to uh, you know 100 yards out where the waves are breaking. Um, he can't make a wave come. All of that effort can't make uh, the the uh, you know a beautiful barrel come so he can get pitted and you know all that stuff. Like he can't make that happen. He or she can't make that happen, right? But what do they do? Why do they do that? Well, they take it in faith. Everything that that surfer is doing is an act of faith. That on the other end of me, waking up early, driving really far, maybe spending money, getting in cold, doing something that I, my, my physical, my flesh wouldn't want to do. That on the other end of that, there's a reward. And it's a wave. When and maybe if a wave comes, I'll sit out here on my board for hours. For hours. Why? To posture myself in a place so that when a wave comes, I don't miss it. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And that's, that's what I think Hebrews 11.6 encourages us to do. And it's not legal. We're talking about this. It's not legalism. It's about where we're going for abundant life. It's not legalism. It's not we're earning God's favor. It's about there's no place we'd rather be than posturing ourselves to see what God the Holy Spirit wants to do in our midst. So we'll wake up early. We'll drive far, we'll spend money, we'll tarry, we'll wait for hours and just seek the Lord and see what he wants to do, not just for us, but through us, through us, because we need his presence to advance his kingdom in power. Otherwise, we're just going out without him. We can't do that without him. And that's what we see on the other side of Antioch's pursuit of, their, of the Lord. Their reward, God speaking, is now our reward, is our reward. And I had a, I have a pastor friend of mine who... Um, has been shepherding me for a long time. And he says this, he says, Nick, whenever you stop 
getting your devotional time with the Lord. If you kind of say you don't need that, that's not really needed in your life, you're not the only one who misses out. He says, he says your wife misses out on you missing out on the Lord and your time with him. Your kids miss out. Your church misses out. If you forsake that, there's people on the other side. There's a corporate ramification to our pursuit of the Lord. And this is what we see at Antioch. Thank God that Antioch was having a prayer and worship night, whatever day that was. Because what came out of that, what came out of this prayer and worship night was Paul's first missionary journey. Do you understand the historical influence of that? It's mind-blowing, right? Mind-blowing. And so the, the last thing we see, and I'll slowly wrap up with this, is they were hungering for more, earnestly desiring more of what God had for them. And uh, a side note, when the scriptures encourage us to seek and to hunger for more of the Lord, to seek his face, to seek his presence continually, the, the presupposition on the other end of that is that there's more that God has to offer us, that we don't have everything, right? That there's more. Yes, everything is, the work is finished. Uh, we've, we've crossed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, but God's presence, he still wants to move. He still wants to speak. He still wants to heal people from physical affliction, demonic affliction, and save the lost, right? Like, so there's still more that he wants to do us. We haven't just arrived yet. There's work to be due, and there's more of the presence of God that we can drink deeply of. And so lastly, we see is that they were united in the spirit. They were hungering for more of the spirit, but lastly, we see that they were yielded to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And what's fascinating about our text is that we see it says that God clearly spoke, clearly spoke to them. Like a one sentence prophetic like, like utterance. Set apart for me Saul and Barnabas, they're named for the work that I have called them to do. But we're not told, we're told that God spoke, we're not told how. How did the Holy Spirit speak? Was it, was it an audible voice that everyone heard and shook the building, right? I think if that happened, I think it would make it in scripture, right? Was it just an internal voice that maybe Saul or Barnabas said? I don't think that's what happened. I think way, uh, the clue, and again, we don't know for sure. This is my hunch, but I think the text tells us how God spoke, how the Holy Spirit spoke this word, and it's in verse 1. Now there were, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Prophets and teachers. I personally believe that one of the prophets that was just listed in that list, the, the church leadership bio, I believe one of the prophets spoke, and they're in prayer and worship. And all of a sudden, the Lord gave them a word, and they shared that word, and it was confirmed. That's what I believe. That's what I believe happened. Now, let me say this: the gift of prophecy is not something that just weird, wacko Christians in the Midwest prioritize in their ministries. Okay? Like, <laughs> I got an amen over here. Yes, um, that's they didn't come up with it. So, so all the abuse that you see on the news. And all the abuse we saw in 2020 of the prophetic, they didn't come up with the idea for the gift of prophecy in the office of the prophet. God did. It was his idea. And it's his gift. It's called a gift in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. A gift of the Father to the church that he gives to build up and to edify and strengthen the church. You might be saying, oh, Nick, well, prophecy isn't what we think prophecy is. It's actually just preaching and teaching. It's just preaching and teaching God's word. A lot of commentaries you read or study Bibles will say that. The only problem with that is nowhere in the New Testament is that definition even remotely close to what prophecy actually is. Just, just you know, like exhibit A. Here's what prophecy is. It's a human report of divine revelation. You're in a moment of prayer. You're here this Sunday, and all of a sudden, you feel or sense that the Lord gave you a, a, a word, a, a thought that flashed across your mind, or maybe you had a dream the night before, or maybe you're like Peter and you just get a straight open vision, right? And then it, that's a divine revelation, three stages of prophecy, revelation, interpretation, application, where you believe God speaks. Uh, he's spoken authoritatively for all time in his word, and any word of prophecy is not going to compete with that, or otherwise we're going to throw it away. It's not, it's, it's not going to like, I'm not going to get a word of prophecy. It's like, I should go rob a bank. Okay, thus saith the Lord, right? It's not going to happen. It's under the authority of God's word. So it's a human report of divine revelation. Hey, I have a hunch that, hey, man, I just, I feel like the Lord is saying this, and you share that, it resonates, and then Antioch honored that word, and they set apart Saul and Barnabas to go, and I'm getting ahead of myself, to go to the nations. But let me, I have so many verses I could share, I don't have time for it, but Acts 11, 27 through 28, I'll show you how this is the, this is the New Testament definition of prophecy. Exhibit A, this is what happened at Antioch in Acts 11. Now in these days, keyword prophets, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of the prophets named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place 
in the days of Claudius. Listen, Agabus didn't come <laughs> to the church at Antioch and exegete Leviticus and preach Levit- the, Levi- the Levit- Levitical you know, law to them and then say, because of what I'm preaching to you, if, if we accept the definition that prophecy is a preaching of God's word, that there's a coming famine at the time of Claudius, right? It is, <laughs> that there's no chance that happens. Key, key, key line here, prophets go up, the Spirit spoke, how did the Spirit speak? Through Agabus, about something he would have no foreknowledge of, right? It's not a lucky guess. It was God, the Holy Spirit, saying this, okay? And I think where we land, I think some of us, like, and, and by the way, I used, to, I used to lean towards cessationism, not believing this was for today. And uh, God, God, like, I'm, I'm a continuationist because of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, my story, the Holy Spirit made me a continuationist. And then I went back to Scripture, and I saw that, wow, I was completely amiss. So, I, I, if you're a cessationist, I understand your concerns. I understand the arguments. I went to Reformed Theological Seminary, which is a Presbyterian seminary, which is cessationist leaning. So I know the arguments. I, 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 I've been there, okay? But I think where we land, I think where we land is this. I don't think we're directly opposed or like, how dare you say, you know, that God's still speaking today, all that stuff. I don't think that's where we land. I think where the majority of us land is this, open but cautious to the prophetic, right? Open but cautious, like charismatic with a seatbelt, click, like, you know, like, and tightened, you know? Like that, that kind of, and I understand the heart behind that. I used to say that all the time, right? I completely understand the heart behind that. So I'm not condemning you if you said that uh, before. I get it. You've seen the abuse. You've seen how bad things can get. And so I get that. The only problem <laughs> with that is I'm a father of three kids. And if I tell my two oldest daughters, you can actually, my, my son can't clean his room. Uh, but I tell my kids and I put it in, uh, and put it in like red ink for all of eternity, canonize it thou shalt clean their room when it's messy. Jack with me? And then my five-year-old comes to me and says, hey, pops, I see it clearly written in your word that I should clean my room. And I'm open to that idea. Like, I can see the benefit of a clean room. I know that people in the past, I know at one time in the past, like generations before, like people cleaned their rooms and it was really cool and edifying and nation. I get that, but I'm just kind of cautious that like if I clean my room, I might hurt others or other, like, like I might get hurt. So you know what? I'm going to stay open but cautious and I'm just not going to clean my room, you know? And I would say, um, no, like you go clean your room because that's what I've told you to do, right? That's what, I've, that's what I've prescribed in my word for you to do. So this is what I'm getting. The reason I share that is this, is if you do believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue today and they're, they're, they're done, and the gifts of the Spirit are not to build a, a a brand, they are to be done for the glory of Jesus and for the good of others and the salvation of souls and the advancement of the kingdom. That's what it's about, okay? Just let that be said. If you're here today and you believe the gifts continued, but we're not obeying 1 Corinthians 14.1, then we're guilty of a sin of omission, not a sin of commission. Sin of commission is like, oh, I didn't lie today or didn't steal today. A sin of omission is saying God told me to go actually engage and desire and pursue something and I'm not doing it. That's a sin of omission, saying, oh, my hands are clean because I'm not actually doing it. No, that's still disobedience. First Corinthians 14.1, pursue love. Key word when you're pursuing the gifts. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. That's the Apostle Paul. And remember, he's writing this after his experience at Antioch. Why would he write this? Why would he say this? If you accept my conclusion that it was through a prophetic word that the Lord spoke to him about his first missionary journey, the reason Paul would say, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you prophesize, because the Apostle Paul saw the landscape of, of the world change through one prophetic word. That's the power of the gifts of the Spirit when done well and when, do, when done in love. So much power. Here's the deal. We've seen um, explosive power is very destructive when used badly. And explosive power is extremely powerful when done in a healthy way as well, right? So just because it's been abused doesn't mean you can just wash it out. When we see through one prophetic utterance, the landscape of history was changed. And you might be asking, okay, well, instead of us being open but cautious, yes, let me earnestly desire after the gifts. How do I earnestly desire? Well, we fast, we pray, we ask God. If it's a gift, then we have to ask the Father to give that gift. Luke 11, after the Lord's Prayer, God says, how much more will God the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we ask, we fast, we pray, and then we begin to risk and act in faith. 
and to act upon his impressions that he's given. There's a simple principle I want to give you, and I am wrapping up here in the next 30 minutes. <laughs> the more you ask God to speak, the more he speaks. It's a beautiful principle. Uh, that I read a book of the students who's, who's had some crazy stories about prophetic. I called him up about a year ago. Somewhat of a friendship, and he said this. He said, this is something that is tried and true. The more you ask God to speak, he speaks. Okay, so in August, I had a family member who got COVID. And at the time, I didn't know that this person had COVID. Uh, the Lord has been speaking to me very powerfully in my dreams. I could share, I could be up here for five hours just telling, even this past uh, three weeks of all the stories that I've been able to share through dreams of, of texting people or on phone call with them, of revelation that I believe is from the Lord. I'm writing down at 2 a.m. and faithfully sharing that and saying, I'm not saying thus saith the Lord. I'm saying, hey, this might be from the Lord. Let me know if it resonates, okay? I've, I've created, the Lord do crazy stuff on the other end of that. I wake up, I have a dream in August and someone approaches me in my dream and they say, they start prophesying over me. And they say, you have, and I'm, I'm changing the language so you don't know who it was. I, because I, I haven't gotten her permission, their permission shares. <laughs> you have a sibling. Their name is X. They have COVID. Dream ends, okay? So I wake up and I keep my phone on my nightstand so that whenever I have a dream, I can write it down uh, and pray about it. And uh, so like whether it's 2 a.m. or whatever, I just, that's, that's what I do. So I pick up my phone. And when I pick up my phone, I have a text from that sibling. <laughs> Honestly, God, true. And they say this, they say, hey, I am sick with a fever and feel like I'm dying. Would you pray for me? I am so scared this is COVID and I do not want to get COVID. And I go, I got bad news for you. <laughs> I had this dream and I think it's from the Lord. And I told her what the dream was. And she goes, and this is what she says. She goes, that's insane. Last night I prayed and I said, God, if this is COVID, give me a dream to tell me that it's COVID. So that's what the true story. Honestly, God, true. Now you might be saying, why in the world would the Holy Spirit give a COVID test to someone? Ah, you know, like you can get a rapid test, you can get a PCR test. Later that day, Holy Spirit gave her a positive COVID test. And then later that day, she got a COVID test and obviously it was COVID. And you might be saying, why? God, would you, why would that be divine revelation? If you submit that it was just a coinky dink or if it was God, I believe it was the Lord. Coinky uh, dink, yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, if you believe that was the Lord, which, we, which I do, why, why would the Lord do that? Well, the empirical evidence would show is because she asked him to. We have not because we ask not. Every, people always ask me, I get, why do you get so many dreams? I, every night before I go to bed, I see the impact of I, go, I hit the floor and the Lord's already ministering to other people the next day as he's giving me information, right? God, speak, your servant is listening. God, speak, your servant is listening. And then also to this individual who did get COVID, went through the ringer went through the ringer, had to go to the ER, it was really rough. And I think the Lord was giving that word to encourage and strengthen this person and say, hey, I saw this coming. You're going to be all right, but you're going to go through the ringer, right? And so the more we ask, the more God speaks. I firmly believe that. But what we, um, and so this is what we see. This is what we see returning to our text. While Antioch is worshiping and praying and fasting, this is exactly, I believe, what they're praying for is God lead us. God speak to us. We're hungry for your presence. Your presence is welcome here. Show us where to go. Show us what to do. We're humbling ourselves before, before you. And, and what we need, this needs to be said, is as they seek the Lord and seek his voice, um, God's voice is not always going to be gumdrops and lollipops. It's not just going to be, you know, the Lord loves us. There's lots of love, like, like, yes, the presence of God is where fullness of joy is found and love is found. They ask for God to speak most likely, and he speaks. And what does he say? What happens? He says, set apart for me, out of your five-man leadership team, set apart me for the two most influential men on that team, Saul and Barnabas. They're going to leave. So 40% of your leadership team is going to be consecrated to me, and they're going to go to the nations. And oh, by the way, on the other end of that word, the whole God, the Holy Spirit, and his sovereignty knew this, is that what awaited Barnabas and what awaited Saul was stoning, persecution, the apostle, we're going to see, the apostle Paul was nearly beaten to death on the other end of this prophetic word. And yet, in spite of that, we see the church at Antioch believe the Lord spoke. He spoke to them and they saluted and they said, yes, sir, we will go into battle because that's what was going on. It's mission critical. So they're not just gathering for a cool encounter. They're not just gathering for some tickles and, you know, whatever, like gumdrops and lollipops, you know, all that stuff. But God's presence, I'm not, I'm not nullifying how we love God's presence. That's what we're created to dwell in. But there's, there's a war to be won. There's a battle that's still raging. And often what you'll encounter as the Lord maybe will take you, like he's done with my life, on a journey of, of being led by the Spirit, is the Lord will reveal things that are extremely difficult to obey. 
and that there's a cost involved and a very sacrificial. But listen, on the other side of Antioch, being obedient to the voice of God, clearly what we see, global and generational impact came through one prophetic word. One prophetic word. One word from the Lord that was honored changed the landscape of history. Changed the landscape of history. And so let me say this. What if Transit Church, what if on the other side of our unity together, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, bearing with one another uh, in love when we're hurt, when we're wronged, forgiving one another, pressing into it. What if on the other side of our unity, eager for that? What if on the other side of our pursuit of the living God, not the dead, dormant, distant God, the God who is present with us just as he was present with the church in Acts, our hunger for more through prayer and fasting and seeking his face in our community groups and our prayer and worship nights? And what if on the other side of us knowing that, the, the Lord knowing that, if he's going to speak, if he's going to mark us, and he's going to tell us where we need to go. Maybe there's a call on some people's lives to the nations. And the Holy Spirit wants to speak that, that we would say yes. And that we would go, what if on the other side, Transit Church, of all of that, there's 2,000 years of kingdom impact on the other side of what the Lord, God, the Holy Spirit wants to do in this house. That's what happened at Antioch, right? They, I don't think they were some flashy mega church with all the bells and whistles. They were just like you and me. But what we see here is that on the other side, their unity, their hunger, and their yieldedness to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, 2,000 years of history, of history was changed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We come before you in full surrender right now, realizing that we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ, that we are not our own, but we were bought. We're possessed by you, Jesus. And there's no place we'd rather be. So thank you for that beautiful reality, Lord Jesus. But we, we come before you in, in repentance, Lord Jesus. Uh, come, Holy Spirit, and bring sweet conviction to our hearts where we may be grieving you or quenching your Spirit's work in our lives, Lord God where we're letting the flesh reign and rule in our bodies, God. Selfish ambition, jealousy, deceit, anger, bitterness, God. Come, Holy Spirit, and purify our hearts today. May we be a clean vessel, a purified home for you to dwell in, Holy Spirit. And we ask for more, Lord Jesus. There is a lost and dying world outside the four walls of this building. And they're in desperate need of what we've been graciously invited into, not by our own doing, but you sought us out, God. And Lord, where there's apathy in my heart, God, indifference, love of the world, Lord God, Take that from us and give us your heart, Jesus, for the nations. Give us your heart for our neighbors, Jesus. Holy Spirit, conform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Lord, we thank you for the invitation, Lord God, to pursue you. And we confess out of our mouths today that you are worthy to be pursued, O oh God. You are worthy to be sought after. You are worthy to worship. You are worthy to tarry just a little bit in prayer after a sermon, God. You're worthy of anything we could sacrifice and worship unto you. You're worthy to be pursued. Nothing comes close to knowing you, to abiding with you, to obeying you, God. And you're worthy. We confess that today, Lord Jesus, that you alone are worthy of our time. You're worthy, God. And so we thank you. We come before you humbly, Lord Jesus, and we thank you, God, that your gospel teaches us this, God. 
that in the midst of our unworthiness, in our sin and our depravity, we were not worthy to be sought after. Our backs were turned to you. And some of us in this room, me being the foremost, were dancing with the devil himself. And you and your undeserved love, you and your undeserved grace sought after us. And the father crushed his son and it grieved the heart of God. It ruined him. There was a, the, oh, the pain of searing lost the father. That moment of separation where the precious lamb of God had to be slain for our sins. The love that God has, the love that you have for us. So we say, thank you, God, for seeking after us when we were not worthy to be sought after and made the refrain of our lives and this church body, this family be now you. We, for the rest of our lives, we confess and we declare that you are worthy to be sought after and that there's no place we'd rather be but your sweet presence, oh God. So yes, as we sing this last song, and then I'll come up here and close with communion. God, let our hearts cry out with sincerity that you are truly welcome in this place, God. It's the whole reason, Jesus, you redeemed us is so that your presence would dwell in our midst. So this song is not heretical. It's not emotionalism. It's the very reason we've been reconciled to God. We're the temple of the living God, the living stones where his presence comes. So manifest your presence this morning. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. We long, we hunger for you. May this be a place where you are welcomed. Lord Jesus, we love you. We come before you grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me, let me close with communion and then we'll sing one last song of worship.